good to kind of be um, beginning this, this year together tonight of uh, the Christian calendar and the, the way that we walk through this, this year that tells a narrative, tells a story, and it begins um, tonight with Advent. This is the season during which we as the church put the spotlight really on the fact that we are awaiting people, that we are waiting for light uh, to completely overrun the darkness. We're waiting for, um, for good to overcome evil. And, you know, as good as this world can be, and sometimes it's really good, uh, we're waiting for something better, um, something much better, for the complete redemption and rescue and restoration of the world that God has made. We're waiting for a time of peace and a time of blessing, um, a time when the wolf shall lie down with the lamb, when, uh, when swords will be beaten into plowshares and when spears will be turned into pruning hooks, a, a day when um, violence and injustice and need and pain and sorrow and crying and all these, all of these things will be no more. And, and the greatest enemy, which is death itself, will be defeated. We're waiting for these things uh, as the people of God. And Advent is the season that we remind ourselves, we're waiting for them in Lent and we're waiting for them in ordinary time, but we are reminded during this season that this is what defines us as God's people. So all these things that we're waiting for, for those of us who live in a world that is rather broken and not complete, um, where hopes are often shattered, where tragedies um, often strike us and we have nothing, um, we have no way of stopping them. And, and I and would say we at Church of the Cross know this quite well. We've tasted the bitterness of the world fairly frequently in our short history together. So this waiting for all these things is sort of sounds like it's too good to be true. But in the midst of the heartache and in the midst of the challenge that we face, in the midst of the difficulties and the anguish, there's an even deeper and more lasting affirmation for those of us as followers of Jesus about the goodness of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and about the goodness of the world that he has made, and about his sure promise that he's not going to leave the world the way that we find it right now but that he's going to come back and to set everything right. And this affirmation in the midst of the ambiguity of our world is something that defines and shapes us as Christians. And this season is the time that that we are to open up the floodgates, if you will, and um, to see the longing and the yearning for this future that God has promised, this glorious future that we affirm week after week after week together, when we say in the Nicene Creed, as we'll say in a few minutes, that Jesus will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Or when we say in the great thanksgiving, embedded in that uh, time of celebration around the Lord's table, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. When we say these things, this is what we're longing for and what we're yearning for is for the king's return to set everything right, all of the wrongs, all of the shattered hopes and dreams, all of the injustices to set all of those right. But the reality is that waiting for this day to come can be quite difficult. It can be quite hard. We can grow weary and impatient just waiting in line at the grocery store (laughs) for all the trivial things. We wait a lot in our lives let alone waiting for Jesus' promised return. So the question I want to ask as we approach this season and as we approach this text in Mark's Gospel is what do we need to hear as the people of God who are indeed called to wait, to be a waiting people? 
And in Mark 13, which is where we'll be tonight, Jesus tells us that we need to stay awake, to keep alert or to keep watch. Stay awake, keep awake, stay alert. There are three different verbs that all basically mean the same thing, three different exhortations. Now, before I um, expand on that a little bit, let me say briefly that Mark 13 is one of the most dizzying passages of all of the scripture to interpret and to understand. Um, fortunately for all of us, we're going to avoid many of the exegetical um, complexities of this passage tonight. Though I do want to say, for those of you who are aware of these discussions and debates, um, that I believe the most plausible reading of Mark 13 is that up until verse 31, Jesus is speaking about the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Prophetically speaking, because it hadn't taken place when he announced this. And that everything that takes place then in verses 32 through 37, Jesus has made a transition, and he's now speaking about his second coming, his coming again um, as well. So this is my starting place as we approach verse 32, verses 32 through 37 tonight. Um, and despite the dizzying complexity of Mark 13 and how it gets interpreted and how it's been interpreted, the message of these six verses is crystal clear for the church, for us. So starting in verse 32, Jesus says, first of all, he says um, that only the Father knows when he's going to return. So the important point that we are to take from this, um, though there have been many debates about what does this mean about the the knowledge that Jesus has as the Son and humanity and divinity, we're not going to get into those right now. The thing that we need to take clearly from this that Jesus is wanting to introduce to us is that um, we don't know when he's going to come. So we know for sure that he's coming. That's an absolute affirmation that we make in the church. But we don't know when he's going to come. As Paul says elsewhere, he says, the day of the Lord will will come like a thief in the night. There will be an element of surprise. And we see this again and again in the scriptures in the New Testament. So the return of Jesus needs to be placed in the category of something like a pop quiz in one of your either current or former college classes where the professor announces on the first day of class that you're going to have a pop quiz at some point during the semester, so you know that it's coming, but you have no idea what day it's going to show up in the class. Or maybe this will be more helpful. It's kind of like the parking ticket enforcers in the city of Boston who go around with their little you know, uh, ticket-printing gun that feels more like an assassination weapon um, to many of us. Um, we know they're going to come sooner or later, but we don't know when exactly they're going to come when we parked in the city of Boston. We just don't know when. So this level of uncertainty and and lack of clarity about when the timing is that Jesus is going to come actually then um, says that we can't plan for his return in the same way that we can plan for Christmas every year or for a deadline at work or at school. Meaning that um, some of the ways that we plan, some of us for these things, and I might put myself in that category, is that we procrastinate as long as we can Um, And then at the last minute, we go into a flurry and get everything situated and ready right before what we expect to be coming actually arrives. But we can't do that with Jesus' return. And the uncertainty of his coming, or the uncertainty of the, I shouldn't say that, his coming is certain. The uncertainty of the timing or the, the when of his coming informs the exhortation then of verse 33, which begins to shape, um, his words to us in this text. So verse 33, he says, Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. And he goes on then to reiterate this exhortation multiple times in this text. He tells the story of a man leaving on a journey. 
um, a householder, somebody who's got a household and servants. And the man leaves on the journey and he puts different um, workers at his house in charge of different... He gives them authority and he gives them their own work to do. And then that story that he tells briefly just focuses in on one servant of the man who leaves his house. And it's on the doorkeeper or the porter. And the doorkeeper, he says, you know, I want you to stay awake. He commands the doorkeeper to stay awake, verse 34. And then he goes on and, and, and um, gives that exhortation to us and says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of your house will come. Whether he comes, and then he divides the night into four parts. You know, whichever part of the night, we don't know when he's going to come back, but stay awake. And so this is his exhortation to the waiting church at the beginning of Advent season. Stay awake. Be on your guard. Keep alert. Or to put it in a different way, don't fall asleep. The converse of his exhortation is found in verse 36, where he says that, um, that, that, that this, the converse of the summons to vigilance is the danger of being found asleep when the master returns, verse 36. And he universalizes this exhortation in verse 37. What I say to you, I actually say to all, to everybody, stay awake. So stay awake. That's the charge. That's the challenge. That's the exhortation that Jesus gives to the waiting church. We're like the doorkeeper in the story. We don't know when the master is returning, but our job is to stay awake. Which actually means continuing to live in a faithful um, in a faithful uh, execution of the charge that our master has given to us. That's what it means to stay awake, basically. Stay awake means to to, to live out the charge that the master has given to us. To be faithful stewards around the clock, which means that for us as Christian disciples, there is no off-duty time. So stay awake. So here's the way I want to help you remember this, is that the exhortation that Jesus gives to us, the church, is to be spiritual insomniacs. To be people who never go to sleep and who stay awake. Now the implication of the charge to be a spiritual insomniac is that it actually is potentially possible to fall asleep. Jesus wouldn't give this this exhortation uh, to his disciples if there wasn't the danger that we might actually fall asleep. I can remember vividly, we finished the Grand Canyon rafting trip. It was 18 days. We went to an Outback Steakhouse and had our first meal um, in three weeks, you know, that wasn't cooked over a gaslit stove. And then we decided as a group of 16 that we were going, um, and my wife was part of this trip, that we were going to drive back all night um, from Arizona to Colorado. And so I jump in the car, I'm in the driver's seat, and you know, we get in about two or three hours, and I'm thinking, my stomach's full, it's getting late, I'm exhausted from this trip out in the elements for, for three weeks, and I'm starting to fall asleep. And you guys have had those experiences before as well. There is something about that experience of trying to stay awake at night while you're driving, that is analogous to what it's like to live in the world that Jesus has made that has turned its back upon him as his disciple awaiting his return. In a sense, the natural climate and conditions that we find ourselves in lend themselves to us falling asleep. So let me give you three ways that we can actually not fulfill our vocation of being spiritual insomniacs. The first one is by forgetting who we are. 
This one's uh, so central and so basic by forgetting who we are. It's easy to start living in the world as if we're just... And think about it. For You can fill in the blank in your own life. I mean, in my life, you can, I can fill in the blank with, you know, daddy, husband, pastor, um, church planner. You can fill it in with teacher, maybe mommy or daddy, roommate, friend, student. We start to live our lives in the world that we find ourselves in in all kinds of ways, under all kinds of roles, with all kinds of titles. And it can be so easy to forget who we are. And once we forget who we are, we are asleep. We're asleep because we're no longer able to fulfill this um, stewardship that has been entrusted to us as the master has left as his people. We can fall asleep. Psalm 78 says this well, talks about... um, teaching these things. It's an exhortation to parents to teach these things. I I like to review this psalm when I I walk through some parents who are wanting to baptize their children. It says to teach these things to your children so that they would not forget God and forget his works. It's easy, isn't it, in this world to forget who we are. So a second way that we can not fulfill this vocation of spiritual insomniacs is um, perhaps more subtle. It's it's being distracted by uh, worldly cares and events, and duties, and responsibilities. And this one is, is, is far more subtle because all of a sudden we, we've got a to-do list, and we live our lives in many ways by our to-do list, and things just start to stack up one after the other, and we start to feel rather overwhelmed and burdened by just the many different things that we have to do. This is different than forgetting who we are because in this scenario, the distractions of the world actually just begin to marginalize who we know ourselves to be. The next thing you know, we're just kind of cruising through life and one thing after another is just layered on top of, on top of, on top of what it is that we know is central. So much so that we find ourselves just kind of numb to the reality of who we are. We know, we haven't forgotten, but we're just kind of living as if the world is what we see. The world is what I have to do. The world is my tasks and my responsibilities and that's about it. And there's no tether back to the heart of who who I'm called to be in Christ. There's no tether back to my identity in Jesus. And so we actually begin to fall asleep. And this call that Jesus has upon his church to stay awake becomes more and more muted and muted and muted until in some ways, you know, it's finally, it's still there, but it's just this distant echo in a world full of constant voices and loud tyranny of the urgent and things that go on and go on and go on. And so it becomes less and less central and we just fall asleep. And a third way that, that, that we can um, fall asleep um, is far more flagrant, but it's often usually just quite secret, um, which is just some kind of a duplistic, dualistic lifestyle. You know, where um, we live in a, a, a world that is constantly um, beckoning us to follow a different master, to serve a different God, whether it be sex or money or power. Those are the big three that we often mention. Um, and, and we, we get into alliance with one of these things. And I, and I said it's flagrant, meaning that one of the ways we fall asleep is we just align ourselves with something that's actually fundamentally opposed to who God is. And we give ourselves free reign to pursue that with our whole heart in that compartment of our life. And we seal that off and, and live a kind of secret life. And then we, we keep up the front of our, our Christian um, identity and obligations and duties and responsibilities and creeds and things. But we go on living in this double way. And that is a way of falling 
asleep, fast asleep. It's kind of like schizophrenia. You know, that on the one hand, we proclaim these things and to be this way. And on the other hand, in the part of our life that nobody else knows, maybe not even our spouse knows, there's something else going on. And that's a way of falling asleep. But Jesus' exhortation to us is to stay awake, keep awake, keep alert. And I want to give you a few ways of remedying these um, ways of falling asleep and, and suggest to you that, that um, the first thing is to remember. The first key to staying awake is to remember who we are. Remember who we are. The identity that we have, that we've been bought with a price, that we're not our own owners, or that we don't own anything, that we're stewards of everything that's been given to us, and to remember the nature of of our identity as sons and daughters of the living king. And then to help us remember, and I would say that is um, the vast majority of this battle, to remain a spiritual insomniac is to remember who we are. To help us remember, we have what we call the disciplines. And these are not at odds with the grace of God. In fact, these are gifts of God's grace to keep us alive to what we know to be true and real. Now, I would say in many ways that you're out there, let's just imagine the analogy of a fire for a moment. You're out in the world day after day in the hard and ambiguous and challenging world that we live in. And constantly you're just getting kind of water thrown on the fire again and again and again. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And that the disciplines and one of the disciplines being corporate communal worship, what we do here week after week as we recount the story of God's purposes in the world and of his salvation, as we come to his word and as we come to his table, that's a discipline coming, getting just out of your life and whatever you're doing on a Sunday and coming to this place. These disciplines, as we partake of them, communal and individual, are like throwing fuel on the fire, on the campfire, like taking the stove fuel and just throwing it onto the campfire and bringing life again and, and, and heat and warmth and vibrancy all over again to our, our identity as, as followers of Jesus. So to take up the disciplines. And another thing I want to suggest to you is simply the reality and we focus upon this some during Advent season of confession and repentance. You know, if something I said about this double life speaks to you in some way, the way to remedy that kind of sleep is to come into the light. The way we come into the light in the church is to confess our sins. And sure, we confess them to the Lord first, but we can confess them to one another as well. And to bring them to the light and to repent, to turn away and to embrace a whole new way of living. So to remember, remember, help us remember by the disciplines. And then one of the disciplines being repentance and confession is to come out to help us continue to stay awake in the world that we find ourselves in. And I want to just close by saying there's another motivation that's running through this text for staying awake. And that is the reality or the prospect of seeing and meeting our master, meeting our king. The reality of the future judgment when the master comes back. And how, we will be, how would we be found? Um, and Eric Remarque, as I'm looking at Bianca because you know German and I don't, so I may have butchered the name. His novel, which I have read all quiet on the Western Front about trench warfare in World War I, written from the perspective of a young German soldier who spent most of his um, time in warfare in the trenches. He, he writes this. <clears throat> he says, describing their outpost on the front lines, um, there's a great deal of polishing being done. We are inspected at every turn. Everything that is torn is exchanged for new. 
I score a spotless new tunic out of it, and Kat, of course, scores an entire outfit. A rumor is going around that there may be peace. But the other story is more likely, that we are bound for Russia. Still, do we need new things for Russia? At last it leaks out. The Kaiser is coming to review us. Hence all the inspections. For eight whole days, one would suppose we were a base camp. There's so much drill and fuss. At last the moment arrives. We stand up stiff and the Kaiser appears. You know, when the, when the superiors got word that the, the general was going to come and inspect the army, they began all the fuss of preparations and, and shining their shoes and putting on new uniforms and all of these things were taking place because of the prospect of what? Of meeting the one who was in charge. And that prospect is a reality for us as the waiting church. But we obviously just don't know when it's coming. Now, generally for us as Christian believers, judgment is a good thing. And we need to hear that clearly in the scriptures. Judgment is the means by which God is going to purify his world and make all things new. And as those whose identity is primarily as children of the light of the day and not of the night, we do not need to fear the future judgment that God is going to bring. We hasten that when we cry out, come Lord Jesus, during Advent season. Come, judge the world. Put the world to rights. Make it all the way it's supposed to be. We long for this. We belong to our Father, and so we hasten this day to come. But this future meeting also has ramifications. This future reality of God's coming judgment has ramifications for the present day and how we live. And that is at work, those ramifications, in this exhortation that Jesus gives to us to stay awake. You're going to meet me again, he's saying. The master who has gone away and he's put you in charge of something. What will he say when he comes back to find you? You know, we have a fascination in our culture right now with judgment. If you just think about all of the reality TV shows for a moment. We love to watch people, American Idol, X Factor, Dancing with the Stars, pick your favorite. We love to watch people meet their judge, don't we? And when somebody has performed incredibly poorly and we see them standing up uh, we know they're going to have to face the judge. We kind of start to squirm and we feel, maybe we feel a little sense of delight in what's about to come. Um, but similarly, when somebody has just knocked it out of the park, there's that same desire in us to see them meet the judge, right? And to receive the accolades and the praise for having done their job well. Well, that's not just a reality show for us as believers. But that day is coming. And it's the prospect of that day that's coming that Jesus invokes here to remind the church that's waiting in a world of challenge, in a world that causes us to fall asleep again and again and again, to encourage and motivate us to stay awake, to keep alert, that we're going to meet our king, our judge, And we long to be among those people that he says, well done, good and faithful servant. That will be the charge that's given to us. That that will be the pronouncement that's made over us as we heed this call to be spiritual insomniacs in a world that easily puts us to sleep. To stay awake and to stay alert by God's grace. Amen.